I'm Shannon Green, and you're listening to On Extremism, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the causes, manifestations, and responses to one of the most important issues of our time. In this series, we'll talk to top experts, policymakers, and practitioners to understand how we can better counter violent extremism around the world. Our podcast is made possible by the CSIS Commission on Countering Violent Extremism, chaired by former British Prime Minister Tony Blair and former U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. For more information on the commission, please visit www.csis.org. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Rabia Chowdhury, Jennings Randolph Senior Fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace, where she researches the intersection of religion and violent extremism. She comes to USIP from the New America Foundation, where she was an international security fellow, developing and leading a CVE community project in partnership with Google, Facebook, and Twitter, focused on the empowerment of American Muslim communities in social media. She is also the founder of the Safe Nation Collaborative, a CVE training firm. Rabia, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Great. So why don't we start out just talking a little bit about the work that you're doing at USIP um, and also the work that you've done with the Safe Nation Collaborative. Sure. Um, So I am a fellow at USIP this year. It's uh, about a 10 to 12 month fellowship. And I'm running a um, research project I have developed and, and will be executing this research in southern Punjab and in Sri Lanka uh, as our secondary region of study. And we're looking particularly at um, the whether there is a relationship between um, at a university student level between uh, organic interfaith relationships and participation in ideologically extreme groups. Uh, so in southern Punjab specifically, there's a lot of heavy presence of these extreme groups, extremist groups. Some of them are banned, some are not banned. Many of them are operational on campuses, and they recruit on campuses, and uh, they have a lot of influence on campuses. So uh, we're going to be basically this in September visiting um, with a a few different universities where there are known issues like this and uh, and speaking with students, doing some surveys, doing some interviews. and uh, hopefully, uh, you know, out of that, the products that we're going to develop, we'll, we'll have some briefings, we'll have policy papers, and even a small podcast. Hmm. So what does that say about CVE programs that seek to improve educational opportunities, particularly higher educational opportunities, and to give people the ability to have critical thinking skills? Well, you know, I mean, I think um, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, at USIP, I'm working in their religion division. So we're looking, I'm looking at this particularly not from an education standpoint, because what we know right now, at least, the literature shows us that education doesn't seem to make a difference uh, in terms of a person's, you know, it's not one of the, for example, a risk factor per se. Uh, You have people who are very highly educated, master's degrees and other things that, that become uh, involved in, in, in extremist activities. Uh, you have people who are foot soldiers who maybe have very low levels of education. It doesn't seem to have uh, a direct impact. Although I will say that, um, and even, you know, you again, you have people going from the West to, you know, you have people in the West who join these activities who might have the same kind of education other people in the West have. So uh, critical thinking skills, uh, 
are they developed in, in a curriculum that you can find in Pakistan? I think a lot of people in Pakistan would also say no, uh, because it's a particular kind of education. But um, because we're looking at this from a the, the perspective of religion and the role of faith and faith actors and leaders, um, the real question for me was this. I mean, I think what, what I wanted to do was really explore social contact theory. And um, even in the United States, uh, for example, as somebody who's been an advocate on um, issues of anti-Muslim bigotry for many years, studies show that if somebody knows a single Muslim, they're much more resilient to like really ugly stereotypes about Muslims. So then the question is, in a place like Pakistan or India or any of these regions where you have people of different faiths have been there historically, what right now is their current of uh, is their current level of engagement? We know that a lot of interfaith leaders say, "Oh, we need more interfaith. We need more interfaith." What that ends up looking like are high-level conferences, and not like every day I'm having lunch with my my friend down the street who happens to be Christian or Ahmadi or a different faith. And so we we want to examine if there are differences um, among students uh, who hold certain beliefs, like whether or not there is any evidence to even show that having certain interfaith relationships makes a difference. So it's the degree of intimate and ongoing contact versus the sort of ad hoc contact that we tend to have through these interfaith conferences that might make a difference. Right. And I mean, like the interfaith conferences include who, right? I mean, like they, they, they don't really reflect many times what's happening in communities or not. A lot of times these are leaders who are not directly co- connected with communities. Um, and it does just because they show up at the conferences doesn't mean they even have any congregational interaction. They might go back to their communities and say, well, I attended the conference, but there's no reason for my congregation to be working with your congregation. So talk a little bit about the work that you've done domestically in bringing communities together with law enforcement through the Safe Nation Collaborative. Okay, so all um, Safe Nation Collaborative came out of um, the realization after, uh, in 2008, 2009, there was kind of a series of revelations in the media about the kinds of training that law enforcement was getting um, that was kind of counterterrorism facing, but really was uh, mostly like really, really bad cultural competency training on Muslims. Very, very inflammatory, very bigoted. And, um, you know, in light of that, uh, the response of the government was great. You know, the Pentagon put a hold on DOD trainings. The FBI put a hold on trainings. They tried to kind of reimagine all of this. And as uh, I and others looked at this, we realized that what was happening was there was a vacuum. There weren't, there wasn't really any institutional, like, consistent training coming out of, like, places that, like, the Muslim community would trust and would have authentic sources and stuff. So um, I, you know, worked with a number of other people and established an organization. It's a firm called the Safe Nation Collaborative. Uh, and the idea was to give a law enforcement training on a local level, state level, although we did do some FBI training, but really it was uh, because, I mean, communities work well with local law enforcement. Communities are very defensive and have every right to be when you have federal law enforcement walk into the door, right? And that almost shouldn't happen unless there's an issue. So the idea was to strengthen that just because in any other context, local law enforcement knows the people in their in their neighborhoods. But um, by and large, there are many, many um, jurisdictions in which local police chief and sheriffs, they have no idea who the hundreds of people at the local mosque are, or that there are six mosques in their jurisdiction. They don't know these things, um, and they kind of stay away from it. Um, but at the same time, they're being bombarded with all of these things in the media about, and so they're naturally also fearful and a little bit suspicious of Muslims. So the idea was to have a law, law enforcement training about Muslim communities, introducing them to their local Muslim community, and also talking directly about counterterrorism and CVE and what the actual threats are versus what the perceived threats are, and then doing um, counterpart trainings in the Muslim community about how to work with law enforcement in a way that protects your civil liberties, 
um, but also protects your communities. So let's talk about that a little bit more because you've been both a practitioner but also an honest critic of CVE efforts. In your mind, what are the benefits of CVE, but also what are some of the concerns or downsides of CVE as it's been implemented in the United States? So, you know, I mean, I think initially uh, CVE came out of a space that was uh, well-imagined and well-meaning. And and I, the way I remember the evolution of this entire phenomenon was that in the, in the wake of 9-11, you know, you had counter-terror policies that were uh, and and you continue to do uh, to have these that were kind of unfairly targeting Muslim communities. Muslim organizations and leaders felt very disenfranchised. Felt like we're not part of the conversation. We you're not asking us what's happening in our communities. You're just kind of creating all this stuff without even um, without even getting our input. And I think the administration's response was CVE was okay. Now we're going to create this new framework in which we're going to partner with communities, and we're going to ask you to take the lead. And um, the there were immediate criticisms in the Muslim community that came out of kind of the civil rights and advocacy groups. Um, and I think some of their some of their concerns are legitimate, and I think some of them have really hampered us on CVE. The legitimate concerns are, well, okay, if you're going to talk about violent extremism, the FBI says the greatest domestic threat are right-wing militia separatist groups, right? Uh, where is the CVE programming for them? Like, are you singling us out? And this is a question that's been brought up repeatedly. I mean, from White House meetings to DOJ, all these things, we bring these up again and again that, okay, you can't make the argument that this is not just about Muslims, but then the evidence shows that it only is. You have to, like, either be honest about it, that it is only about Muslims. Um, and I think and I think you can even make a decent argument for that um, because uh, there are people who have raised concern from the government saying, how come Muslim communities get a pass on this? In any other context, we would just prosecute and arrest. Why are you giving special accommodations to Muslim communities? So it's interesting, right? Um, but I think, so, you know, so you have some legitimate concerns there from civil rights organizations, but I think what's happened is those concerns have drowned out much of the possibility of us really engaging on this effectively. So we say, until you fix X, Y, Z, we're not going to touch this issue. And it's they've made it very toxic for the, the handful of us who work on it. Um, but increasingly, uh, they, they're realizing that, you know, we're, we, we need to pay attention to this issue. And even though it's not obviously a prevalent epidemic in our community, one or two cases a year also we need to think about why this is happening. Um, so I've been seeing more chatter online with advocacy groups too saying, okay, how do we address these issues? And I'm like, oh, hello, we've been, some of us have been trying to do this. Um, and, and so let's see, you know, but I do think the government needs to re-envision CVEs and take the civil rights concerns legitimately and respond to them and stop ignoring them. So that's a big question and a big challenge, I think. How do you take what's good about CVE in terms of community engagement and addressing the very real threats that our communities face while mitigating the downsides, particularly the civil liberties concerns? The way that you practice it or the way that you imagine it, how would that how would that go? So the way that I've always practiced it and imagined it, whether it was at Safe Nation Collaborative or whether it was um, with New America Foundation, where I ran a, a project that was partnered with Google for a couple of years, is to basically give communities information. Here is the information. This is what's happening. You decide what you want to do with it. Simple as that. And I think for the most part, the government has been looking at communities also asking for them to do that. When people are say, I'm critical of government CVE programs, I want to say, well, name one. 
Like, what are you critical of? Um, you know, the only CVE program I could say that really has emerged as a real program is this very new FBI SRC phenomenon, which is these shared responsibility committees, which I think are highly problematic, by the way. <clears throat> but I think they've come out of a space where you have government saying, well, nobody else is really uh, responding to our our request for you to do something. Um, but again, that begs the question of the disproportionate attention to terrorism at the hands of Muslim perps. And so I think, you know, part of this can easily be solved if we are more proportionate in our government response and the resources we put in to the threats as they are. Um, and, and Muslims, like anybody else, want to be treated fairly. And as I understand it, one of the concerns is that oftentimes it's law enforcement that's in the lead for engaging with communities. In your opinion, is law enforcement the right actor or should there be other government agencies or actors that are really at the forefront? I think local law enforcement is best positioned. And the reason I say that is because local law enforcement is in charge of making sure that local communities kind of understand their local risks, right? Like public safety. And I and I think that's the problem is that what we've done is we've turned this into this international, conspiratorial, ideological, like a monster that nobody can fight. And we have to scale it back. When I talk to Muslim communities and I say, there are people online who, if your kids connect to them, like they're going to try to recruit them. I say to them, it's like a sexual predator. How do we deal with sexual predators? We don't have this overwhelming response that demonizes the community. We say to that community, these people are coming after your kids. Keep your kids safe. Know that what's happening. And I think we have to scale it back in terms of how we think about it. And so with local law enforcement, you know, they, they have all kinds, a lot of good local law enforcement agencies will have all kinds of uh, training programs they give to local communities, about active shooter training, sexual predator trainings, online safety trainings. Um, even with the FBI, I, and the FBI came up with this um, new kind of online thing, and I, you know, about keeping safe from radicalization. I said, you know, this would be so much better if you just made it as part of your online safety thing, instead of a whole separate phenomenon, because that makes, you know, what I mean. It pathologizes like this community, and so um, I do think local law enforcement is a, is a good place for it to happen. But when federal law enforcement and federal agents get involved, um, people do feel very cornered. Mm. So you talked a little bit about social media and the work that you were doing at New America Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that project and, and what were you doing with the social media firms? Uh, well, so, you know, back when social media exploded and, um, and, and security agencies noticed that violent extremist actors are using this pretty effectively to recruit and message and create certain narratives and even do things as crazy as live tweet attacks. Um, you know, they went to um, the kind of histories, they, they, they did go to some of these private firms like Google and Facebook and Twitter and, and say, listen, we need you to like censor things, we need you to cut stuff out. And the response from a lot of these firms was, well, you know, we have limitations on what we do and we also protect, you know, we believe in the First Amendment and we're not a government, you know, arm. Um, so one of their responses to that was that, you know, how do we how do we then give capabilities to the to the massive amounts of people who are being impacted like this uh, by this, which is mostly American Muslims? Because if you have violent extremists shaping the narrative on Islam and Muslims, well, the hundreds of thousands of Muslims who are doing great work, um, nobody hears their stories. So this this program at New America Foundation developed out of that. Basically, how do you give social media advocacy skills to people who've been doing great work for years, anyways? So um, when when I would go and we'd give the trainings, you know, all day we had a communications training. Um, we had a Hadaway uh, Communications come and do these great communications trainings. Uh, social media trainers from um, Google, Facebook, and Twitter. And uh, we remained engaged with them if they had issues on social media. And, and we weren't asking them to do anything that they hadn't normally done. 
we said just whatever work you're doing, you've got a website, not just get, be really good on social media, and that was it. And we explained it came out of the CVE concern, but nobody's asking them to do go online and challenge violent extremists directly. And what did you find in terms of the efficacy of that approach? Uh, you know, I think the approach I think was the right approach. I think the problem with a lot of CVE, if you're going to look at this as CVE, and I and I do, I actually do look at the CVE. I think having the stories of American Muslims who are like the authentic, real stories. Uh, and even having good religious literacy is CVE. I mean, whether or not you want it to be, like that's because it rejects violent extremism, simple as that. Um, the problem is you can't measure these things. So if you're not talking about efficacy, like how do we measure like the efficacy of it? I do think though, I will say that um, Muslims definitely in the last few years have gotten much better on social media. They're much more media savvy. Um, younger people are using these tools fantastically. So I do think there's been a tremendous, and I don't, I'm not saying it's all coming out of these trainings specifically, but I do think when I have the conversations, when we've done the trainings, we did I think 10 of them around the country. Um, number one, a lot of people who spend so much work doing grassroots work don't realize what's happening online and how they're losing control online. So it was kind of a wake-up call for them. And then they also don't realize the kind of power they can have online. And, I, and I'm glad to see that they're, they're using that power. So I think based on your answers, I already know how you're going to respond to this question. But there is this debate about how much does that online conversation matter? How much does it matter in terms of radicalization and recruitment, but also how much does it matter in terms of the response? Do you think that contesting the narrative online is a central part of what we need to be doing? Or is it, you know, a minor part of what we need to be doing? How do you view the importance of the online engagement? I think on I, I think it's very important. I mean, look, look, our our discourse and the way we approach people and the way we think about things is directly impacted, has always been impacted by media, right? And social media is the new media. Now you have traditional media taking cues from social media. People on social media can create the stories. You look at Black Lives Matter, you look at the Arab Spring, there's a reason that you have authoritative regimes, the first thing they do when there's a little bit of civil disrest is, or unrest is turn off the social media. It's an incredible uh, organizing tool, um, but it's very important. I mean, this new look we're having at criminal justice in America and police brutality, it wouldn't happen without social media. Because you know what? The local news wasn't going to cover it. Uh, I think it's very, very important and impactful. And I think that the last thing we can afford to do is disengage ourselves from that space. Mm. So that's a good segue to my next question, which is you're a lawyer. Um, you went to law school. And so how do you think that that legal training influences the way that you view CVE and the way that you've practiced it? That's interesting. I almost feel like um, the legal training only informs it to the extent of me being able to explain to people what their parameters are in terms of the law. Why? Like, for example, I'll give you an example is is – uh, people say, well, how come so-and-so was charged with terrorism and that person's not? Like, I can, I can at least break those kinds of things down. I can explain that, listen, on a, on a, on a legal level, if these are the kinds of changes you made, these want to see, these are the kinds of changes that have to be made. You have to be more engaged from a state-up process on these issues. I don't think it's informed. I've actually had to break free of a lot of my, <laughs> my legal training, which is, you know, as a lawyer, you are very confined by rules, right? Like, there's, you can't say certain things online. You don't speak to media. You're very private about information. You hold on to client information. You never reveal stuff. You don't show your hand. There's a lot. Uh, lawyers are, we're like these big glaciers where that are immovable. Precedent is important. And, and, um, and I think that's, uh, we, we, 
even for for the for the legal community, especially in light of like serial and and all of these new kind of crowdsourced investigations on crime, uh, is a conversation that's happening in law schools now. Is that you know what it's a new world. We have to learn to speak to that world. We're not just talking to each other anymore. Um, so I it didn't inf- yeah I had to kind of break free of those legal shackles and say well. This may or may not impact my law license, but it has to be done for the sake of advocacy. And given given that, are you surprised that DOJ and that the USG have started to explore these non-prosecutorial approaches to people who have expressed support for terrorist organizations or maybe intended to travel to join a terrorist organization? So there has been an emerging conversation about off-ramps, alternative mechanisms. Is that... A welcome development, do you think? You know, I, I again, I think it's kind of a knife that cuts both ways. On one hand, I'm a parent, right? I have a 19-year-old daughter. If, God forbid, I found out when she's on her smartphone, she ends up getting caught up with somebody and somebody recruits her, do something, anyway, whatever it is, you know. As a parent, my, you know, my, would I want her to be given a chance? Of course I would. I know what it was like to be a teenager. People do stupid, stupid things. Um, I do. So I, I, I agree there. But on the other hand, the interesting thing is because of the really strong response from the civil rights community and, and the Muslim advocacy community that, listen, uh, like you're, you're creating these special programs for us means actually you're demonizing us, makes me wonder if it's better if we just don't go back to a, a straight <laughs> enforcement um, a model, but I will say I think we should look to some of the models that ha- that, are, that are, exist in Europe, and where you have different governments who approach the issue differently, and they even with returning fighters, people who have actually not just thought about it or verbally said things online, but actually have gone and fought with certain organizations and are coming back and um, and how they're approaching that. I th- I do think we are a little too heavy-handed in our prosecution on on um, some of these issues, especially where you have uh, people who have basically said things online but not necessarily committed a criminal act. And I think uh, that is a concern I have, Where is where does the First Amendment stop and start for Muslims? Yeah. So Rabia, many of our listeners will recognize you um, as the public advocate for Anand Syed. Um, and you brought his case to the popular podcast, Serial. Um, and recently he was granted a retrial. You also have a podcast called Undisclosed and are coming out with a book on Anand's case. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Why was this particular case so important to you? Uh, well, you know, this case, and I, and I feel terrible saying it, it's not that I've been an advocate for wrongfully convicted people or anything like that. I just knew Adnan since he's a kid. I've known him since he was 13. And uh, he's my, my brother's best friend since that time. And so when he was arrested, it was just like, I was in law school, but it was like having the, the wind knocked out of you. And then seeing how the prosecution take, took place, as a law student, um, really destroyed a lot of my idealism about law. And I realized things are not, especially coming, see, when you when you come from a family that's from Pakistan, where there's a lot of corruption in the judiciary, right, a lot of corruption in the legal system, we do tend to have much more kind of idealized um, notions of justice in the United States that do process, these things actually mean something. So it was very dis- disillusioning and uh, just knowing him and what he went through and how many how many things went wrong for him. It was just something that I could never let go of. Um, I care about him. I love him like a brother. And uh, I believe in his innocence. So for me, it was just not something I could walk away from. And it wasn't until I realized the legal, like the, the courts have completely failed us that I was like, I'm going to go to the media. And do you think that's a sentiment that's shared more broadly by American Muslims, that the 
court system is failing the communities, um, or is it just something that's particular to his case? Yeah, you know, generally speaking, I, Muslim American communities haven't had a lot of interaction with the American judicial system, at least not the immigrant population. Now, black Muslims have, black Muslims in America have historically, but there's always been this like big divide between the immigrant Muslims, which are maybe 50, 60% of the population, 65% of the population, and, and black Muslims. And it's real tragic because there hasn't been a lot of um, information across these communities about, listen, this is our historical experience with law enforcement and courts, whereas we're coming into this thinking everything, there's all, it's all law and order in America. Um, so it's, and when Adan was arrested, he was the very first and maybe even last person ever arrested in our entire, in the Baltimore community. That's a big community. So it, it's been a, um, it was a big shock. And, and part of the problem was that because he was convicted, everybody who knew, you know, people who heard about it said, well, I mean, he was convicted by jury of his peers. It means something was there. Uh, it has taken a lot for us. And and that's a general sentiment, I think, in America in general. We do give a lot of preference to the narratives of law enforcement and, the, and courts and juries and things like that without being really critical about it. So what happens now that he's been given a retrial? What happens now is, you know, this just happened, what, 10 days ago. It's amazing that his, you know, his, his, Sentence was vacated. It's like he was never convicted, and we have to wait for the for the state to decide what they want to do. They could say we're ready. We're going to go back to trial, and you know if they do, there's a part of me that's itching for it. I, I we are so ready. We're so ready to destroy their case, um, and and have him fully acquitted. On the other hand, it would take a lot of resources. They might just offer him a plea deal, and again, in cases like this, it's very common for people just to take the plea and walk. It's been 17 years. A uh, third option is that they're just going to keep appealing the decision, drag it out for a few more years, and we see where we are. Hmm. So my last question for you is, where do you think all of this is going in terms of CVE policy? As you may know, here at CSAS, we're doing the CVE commission in order to inform the next administration. I think we need to be positioned to address not just the threats of today, but the threats of tomorrow. When you think about the next 10, 15 years, how do you see the threat evolving, but also our response needing to evolve? You know, I think um, in terms of the American Muslim community, if we're going to look at um, where this needs to go, I think the next step has to be that we need to have we need to bring together different communities on these issues, right? We need to bring together the civil rights community, the tech community, the law enforcement community. We all have to sit together and come up with. And you know, the interesting thing is, in in the few forums that we I have witness this happening uh, when you when you when when law enforcement is told this is how this is impacting us there is a hesitation and when civil rights advocates are told okay well this is a scenario how would you handle it they also realize that wait a minute we've never been trying to answer this question so I think that's kind of the next level there but I also think in terms of like domestic threats I'm personally very very uh, bothered by a rise of um, intolerance and racial tension and I feel like this is something we have to keep an eye on. Um, gun violence, these things here uh, locally. I think on an international level, it's just it's almost like who can figure out what's going to happen with 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 the, the region between Syria and Iraq and um, and and Pakistan. Um, those governments, I feel like, have to have to take the lead on, you know, on on securing their own citizens. But I do think what you're seeing is a global rise of intolerance um, between people and the, the and violent responses because of that. I'm glad you pointed that out because it really is a vicious cycle. As, you know, as people become less tolerant of Muslims and, you know, 
tried to depict Muslims as part of the problem and as terrorists, then you see this rise, you know, in intolerance. And then that makes people feel alienated from their societies and makes them more vulnerable to recruitment. So it really is sort of a dangerous cycle that needs to be, you know, disrupted. You know, it makes them vulnerable to recruitment. It also makes them vulnerable to be attacked in their own country, to hate crimes. And, you know, when I when I, I was in uh, Sri Lanka recently, and, and there there has been a rise of kind of like ideological extremism that's coming out of the, the Sinhalese Buddhist community towards minority communities with 30% of the population. And what I've been told right now, it's almost like, you know, kind of all the, 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 the tinder has been collected in terms of like the suspicion and hate towards each other. And it would just take the right kind of match to really inflame people and cause actual violence. And I feel like we're headed that way in the United States too. Yeah. Well, on that <laughs> on, on that, that note, yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We look forward to um, having your book come out in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, and August, then 9th. Con- August 9th. August um, 9th. And to continuing to follow your really important work. Thank you so much for having me.